Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped by the sea at Pahihiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die here in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen." Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, 
and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Let's pray. Father, this is a really precious narrative for us believers. We see your glory manifested in a very tangible and apparent way. Lord, just as the Israelites were greatly blessed as they saw your care and your comfort for them, as they experienced your shepherding them, even into great difficulty. And they saw your hand. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace that we might also be comforted. Though we don't see and experience the things that we just read about the same way, I pray, Spirit, because you do indwell us, that you would give us understanding, you give us insight into who you are, that we might know you, that we might have faith, that we might have strength in the midst of difficulty, that that this passage would give us clarity and understanding for the things that go on in our life and that we would trust you and glorify you in the day of difficulty. And Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. I've entitled the message, God Glorified in the persecution of his people. Which may seem strange initially because that's not typically what we think about when we think of this very well-known narrative in Scripture. And frankly, I was not expecting a deep doctrinal treatise when I began exploring this. But I am convinced that that is the point of this text. And so because of this, I feel compelled to do a strange thing, which is to point out some of the key exegetical elements before we actually get into the text, just to explain why I've entitled it this way, that God is glorified in the persecution of his people. We're going to look at these exegetical elements in the introduction, and then we're going to work our way through the passage. So first of all, I want to direct your attention to chapter 14, in verse 4. And this is a uh, key sentence in this passage. And, and it's a summary, I would say, of what is going on here. It says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Note that God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh will pursue Israel. The word there is the word radaf, commonly translated persecute. It is the Hebrew word for persecute. And that's really what persecution is. It's to pursue somebody with the intent of doing harm to them. And I think there's a double meaning going on here in this text. 
And I think it seems obvious enough. Pharaoh is pursuing Israel, but clearly he's seeking to destroy them because they've thrown off their service to him and have chosen instead to serve Yahweh. And he's going to attack them, wipe them out. And so in a very real sense, they are being persecuted because of their worship to God. But this persecution is not without its purpose. I want to point out another word there in verse 4. It's the word kabod. The word glory. It means weight. God is going to allow the Israelites to be pursued, to be persecuted, so that he might be glorified. And the two words come up multiple times throughout this story and often in complement to one another. And this is no accident. The author is trying to tell us something. There's a connection between this pursuit that God gets Israel into and God exalting himself over Pharaoh and to the Israelites. So this verse could be translated, he will persecute them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. That is, God is glorified in the persecution of his people. And also note that how this story progresses. In the first section, we have God clearly leading Israel into this situation in the Red Sea. And his leading is what provokes Pharaoh to pursue them or persecute them for leaving his service. And then Israel freaks out because it looks like they're about to die because of their choice to stop serving Pharaoh. They thought they were free. This is not what they expected. And then the story ends with God demonstrating that they had nothing to fear. That this was all part of his plan. He was with them. And he is going to be exalted over Pharaoh by destroying his army. He's going to exalt himself to Israel by showing his covenant faithfulness to them. And the passage also concludes by exalting Moses because he was faithful. Despite the opposition that he that he faced from Pharaoh as well as from the Israelites in the midst of this persecution. And then as well, the next chapter, chapter 15, which we'll look at next week, exalts God amongst the nations. Point is, God has exalted himself by this event. And all the nations they were going into knew about Yahweh because of this event. So God is clearly exalting himself in this. Another key verse in this section is 14:13, where we're given the application for this doctrine that God is glorified through the persecution of his people. And it's where God tells Moses, or sorry, Moses tells the Israelites, "Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which shall work for you this day." And so I just want to be clear, I'm not stretching an idea to fit it into this text. In fact, it's, it's, this is one of those things I just couldn't get away from. It's like every time I kept trying to, maybe there's something else that this passage is about. It, just, it, it felt uncomfortable for me. Honestly, as I was talking about this passage with the elders on Thursday night, I, I explained to them that this theme of persecution is, is, is really unsettling for me. For the first reason, it's not something I want. So despite the comfort that this passage brings, which is the point of the passage, that God is comforting, he's, he's taking care of his people, he's sovereign over this circumstance. Despite that, I don't find the, the prospects of persecution all that warm. Desirable. But it's also unsettling because we live in a situation where persecution is not the norm. And so it feels even more awkward to preach a text on persecution. It prompts the difficult question of what does this mean for us here in 21st century America? And I'll try to address that as we look at the passage but I want to be clear too, my, ma- my aim in this message is not to inspire. It seems like 
messages on persecution tend to come up at conferences and they're like a, you know, they stir people up to just go out and, and, and lay their life down for the Lord. And that's really not my aim. Instead, I want this message to provide a firm theological foundation for how we are to understand persecution if it comes. And by extension, how we're supposed to understand suffering in our life. And this is my aim because it's the aim of the text. Not because I think persecution is something this particular church needs to know about. But it's coming from the text. And I think that'll be clear as we dive into it more. All that being said, let's begin at chapter 13, verse 17. Where this describes God's shepherding Israel to the Red Sea. And I choose that word particularly as well. I had leading, but you actually see God more than leading. He's shepherding them. He's caring for them. He's caring for their souls and bringing them to this place where they think they're about to be wiped out. And he's not doing it to be cruel to them. If there's any trick being played, it's on Pharaoh. But even then, this is, it's ultimately for Israel's good. God is caring for his people here, as we'll see. So when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with them, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, did not depart from before the people. I think one of the most encouraging doctrines in all of Scripture is the promise that God is going to shepherd us through all of life. And bearing testimony to this fact is the hymn, Guide Me, Thou, O Great Jehovah. The hymn goes, Guide Me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land, I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Open now the crystal fountain, whence the healing streams do flow. Let the fiery, cloudy pillar lead me all my journey through. Strong deliverer, be thou still my strength and shield. And the the hymn is 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 a song that's written to comfort Christians based upon this narrative of how God shepherded Israel out of Egypt and the comfort that this hymn provides to believers and really other people is uh, testified to the fact that this was the first hymn played at the English royal wedding of Prince William and Kate Middleton. It's the very first song they sang right after the processional because of the comfort it brings and you could understand the comfort in that situation, that God is leading. This is also the emphatic point in the first section that we'll look at today. From the first steps that Israel takes in their exodus from Egypt, God is leading them. He's caring for them and guiding them with a clear and a manifest presence, a pillar of fire and a cloud. And so right off the bat, We're struck with the news that in guiding them out of Egypt, God chooses to lead them in a way that is not what one would expect. The normal way would have been around the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but God knew that they would get scared when they saw battle. Despite the fact that it says that they were leaving Egypt armed for battle. They were leaving with a sense of great confidence. They were raring for a fight. But God knew that's not what they were ready for. And so to shepherd them, he leads them in a different route. And I love what this manifests about our God's love and his care. 
God knew they weren't ready for a fight. He knew that they still needed to grow in confidence in him. And the only way that they were going to do that is if they saw that he would fight for them, that he would protect them, even in a seemingly helpless situation. And really, until that point, he knew they weren't going to be ready. Now, they do battle after this. In a couple more chapters, we'll see they have to battle other tribes as they approach Canaan. And they have victory at that point, but they need to understand this is God's battle. He will care for them, but they, they won't understand that until God shows himself. They weren't, they didn't, they, despite all that God had done in Egypt, they weren't ready, and we'll see that. And this is so like us. One moment we can be so confident. We see Israel going out again, armed for battle. They, they feel like they can take on the world. And yet in reality, at the first sign of opposition, they panic. They get angry. They freak out. Just like us. Our hearts can fail us at the first sign of opposition. And verse 19 provides kind of a contrast. It's a brief excursus that really highlights Joseph's faith in contrast with the Israelites as well as God's faithfulness. And Moses is certain to, to make sure that the Israelites take Joseph's bones out of Egypt because they had vowed to do so for Joseph. And it demonstrates Joseph's greatness because even when Joseph died, God had blessed Joseph incredibly. He had given him, I mean, he had, he had risen to second in command over the greatest nation in the world at that time. He had ever, God had provided everything for Joseph, even reconciliation with his family. And still, Joseph's heart was still not in Egypt. It was in the promised land. And so you see, Joseph's, Joseph's heart, despite all that God had given him in Egypt, Joseph's heart was still in the promised land. And so that's seen by, by him saying, take my bones with you. And then God fulfills this promise that Joseph prophesies. And that's contrasted with the Israelites' heart that when they face opposition... They're ready to go back to Egypt. But again, the main point of the section is God's glorious presence in leading Israel. In an unprecedented act of mercy, God leads his people with the manifest presence of a fiery cloud, a fiery pillar. The fact that he manifests himself in this way demonstrates both the fact that he's going to guide them, but it's this comforting presence At any time, day or night, they could look out and see God is with them. God is taking care of them. So like a faithful shepherd, he wants the people to know that he is going with them. They're not on their own. It's not like you're just freed to just go and do what you want. I'm going to take care of you. And so many missionaries have found comfort in the promise that Jesus gave to the church in Matthew 28 when he when he gives the Great Commission, this, he finished the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. When he gave that, he gave this comforting promise. And lo, I am with you always. Time and again, as I read biographies of missionaries in the most difficult times in their life, this is the promise they held to. Of all the promises of Scripture, this is the one that, that, that kept them through. The fact that God was with them brought more comfort to lonely, scared, and to discouraged people despite their circumstances. And consider the comfort that must have accompanied the Israelites as they could see the presence of God at all times, leading them through this barren wilderness into this unknown place, not knowing what they were going to face. And I direct our attention to Matthew 28 for a reason. Because... God doesn't manifest himself in a fiery cloud to us anymore. But he gave us this promise, Matthew 28. Despite the fact that we don't see a fiery cloud following us, he is with us always. He is with us always. And so we can have that comfort because he's overcome the world. Do you? doctor tells you that the disease is terminal and he'll be with you when you choose to take risks for his namesake 
And He'll be with you when you lose your loved ones. And He'll be with you when you fail. And when you're alone. And when you're discouraged. And when you feel like there's nobody you can trust. Even in your family. Remember Emmanuel. God is with us. And I don't know your past. I'm barely aware of your present situations. And I certainly don't know any of your futures. But I do know this. I do know this one thing. Christian, remember that nothing is an accident. And that God is going to be with you. And you are never alone. And you never will be If only Israel had recognized this. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pahiroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall camp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. There is some really comforting theology in this section. In 14.1, it says that God chooses to lead Israel through, toward the Red Sea because they couldn't handle the normative route. And then in verse 3, the leading of the people to the Red Sea, we see, is meant to provoke Pharaoh to follow after them. See, Pharaoh is going to think that they're just wandering around aimlessly. Easy pickings. They're trapped. And now, we like Israel assume that God, if God wanted to save Israel, why does he purposely stir up Pharaoh to follow after them? Knowing it's going to freak them out knowing it's going to shake them to the core with fear. Why would God do this? Well, three reasons. As we mentioned before, it's because of, it's for Israel's good. Second of all, for Pharaoh's fall, but then ultimately for God's glory as well. God wants to prove himself to Israel, but he also wants to exalt himself over Pharaoh, which is the supreme motive of God here in this text. And I'd say it's the supreme motive of God in everything that he does. And I say supreme motive because it's not the only motive. Just because God has this supreme motive of wanting to glorify himself in all things does, isn't some cold doctrinal point. There's comfort in it. See, although God is seeking to exalt himself amongst the nations, he's also compassionately caring for his people at the same time by leading them into a very troubling situation. See, people often ask, how can God be said to be good if he's seeking to glorify himself and yet at the same time he allows us to suffer? What kind of good God is that? It's like he's exalting himself at our cost. Well, part of the answer is that God actually glorifies himself and God demonstrates his goodness through our suffering. God demonstrates His goodness through our suffering, not simply apart from it. Of course, this is in Israel's perspective of the situation. According to them, it appears that this great deliverer, Moses, has guided them into some sort of trap. He's gotten lost. And he set them up for annihilation. And so when they see Pharaoh coming after them, all their hopes are dashed. But in reality, we see God is designing this not to set Israel up, but to set Pharaoh up. And as God predicted, when Pharaoh sees that Israel's trapped, he has a change of heart. And he decides to pursue them. And he pursues them with a vengeance. It says, he calls for his select chariots. The chariots were the superior war machine of this time period. Part of what made Egypt so strong is the fact that they had chariots. Not all people groups had them at this point. 
It was Egypt's version of our modern day F-35. And the point is that Pharaoh is bringing his best. It goes beyond that to say that he brings all of his chariots. So it's like he brings all of the Air Force, all the A-10s and the F-18s and the F-15s, whatever he has handy. And then there's more. It says that he brings his officers. The word means uh, men of a third rank. The point being that the chariots and the crew represented the elite. He was bringing his special forces as well, his elite troops. So he's got his best war machines, everything else he has available, his elite troops, and he's going after Israel to destroy them. But little does he know that he and them are all going to be destroyed in a matter of hours. And there's a subtle point in verse 8 that's worth paying attention to. In contrast to Pharaoh's resoluteness, it says Israel's leaving with boldness, with defiance. And the point is to build tension into the story, to contrast these two resolute forces. Israel's going out defiantly and Pharaoh's bringing everything he has. So there's this line that's been drawn in the sand and it appears that there's going to be no going back for either side. Which brings us to the next section. When Israel freaks out. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die here in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. And then we have Moses' response. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which shall work for you this day. When the Egyptians begin to march closer, things change dramatically. Israel looks into the distance behind them. The word actually is, it means they peered into the distance, this focused attention. And when they discern what's coming, they realize it's Pharaoh and all his forces. That defiant confidence that we saw just a few verses earlier shatters. They're undone. The text says that they feared greatly. Well, they were terrified. They freaked out. In one look, that defiant boldness is evaporated. Much like us. Often we can be so confident. And then that confidence is followed by a severe trial. Israel's confidence here has proved to be fair weathered. Their fear leads to even more destruction though. When they turn on their leader. And ultimately against God in their fear. Psalm 106 comments on this whole Red Sea incident. And the psalmist says, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. See, in history, the Israelites looked back upon this event and they recognized what it was. This is not just some frustration. This is rebellion. They're rebelling against God and against Moses. So they're not merely expressing some disapproval at Moses' navigational skills. And know what they say in verse 11. Is it because there's no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die here in the wilderness? The statement is drenched in irony. Because archaeologists say that three quarters, three fourths of Egypt's land was dedicated to graves. It's been said before, the Egyptians were obsessed with death. So when they say, are there no graves in Egypt? They're not making a joke. They're they're sharply mocking him. Demonstrating not only fear, but contempt in Moses. And they continue in verse 12. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone and note the phrase, that we may serve God. Egypt. In that word serve, it's the word for worship. Their hearts are truly with Egypt. 
It's possibly the blackest statement in the whole of this book. It's because of their fear that Israel claims it would be better to go back to a wicked, torturous slave master than to worship the one true God. What they say is insane. It's insane. They've lost their grip because of their fear. Now what if we were to do some mediation at this point? Tried to get the bottom of this conflict. We were to say, has Moses done anything wrong? He's just obeyed God. Has God been deceptive with Israel? He's toyed with Egypt a bit. But he hasn't blundered in leading his people here. In fact, the Red Sea is exactly what the people need. So while this anger, while this conflict, while this rebellion... It's also what's at the bottom of many people's anger. You want to know why your husband gets so angry when you bring up a certain issue? Fear. You want to know why you can't go places in a conversation with your wife? True unity is going to be achieved within our families and within our church. What needs to be addressed in our lives? Fears. Brings up this question. What are you afraid of? What's holding you back from going where God would want you to go? And I don't mean that as a location. I mean in your maturity. In your service to Him. What's holding you back? What are you afraid of? Remember that Israel's terrified because they think they're about to be destroyed. But they don't realize that Pharaoh is the one who's actually going to be destroyed. And the truth is that what keeps many people from repenting and trusting in Christ is fear. They're afraid of what they're going to miss out on if they turn and trust Christ with their life. If they, if they put away that life of sin. If they don't live for all that the world provides for them. They have to give that up. What might they be missing out on? And they're terrified by the prospects. And they look at Christianity and they just see darkness. Maybe. They're fair. They're terrified. They don't want to let go of what's normative. In fact... Familiar slavery... It's often more appealing, uh, more appealing than terrifying freedom. They thought that that mirage of Egypt still had something to offer them. So these Israelites are ready to go back. But the blackness of verse 12 is contrasted with the glory of verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He'll work for you today. And for all these Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. See, despite Israel's contempt of Moses and the rebellion here, Moses doesn't waver a bit. Moses has seen enough of God's power. He believes that God is going to do what he says. And he simply responds to them by giving them three commands. And they had universal application throughout time. And really, this is the application of this doctrine that God is glorified in the persecution of his people. We are to not fear, stand firm, and to trust him. First of all, it says, don't fear. We've already noted how fear was the root of Israel's insanity. Secondly, stand firm. What stands out about this is, is what Paul said in Ephesians 6. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand firm against the uh, schemes of the devil. That's the point. To stand firm. Don't, don't waver despite all those attacks. Despite the persecution. And he says, then see the salvation of the Lord. And that's a key phrase. Because it points to the fact that Israel has nothing to do except witness the power of God. They just have to watch. Which is, of course, why this event is taking place. God wants them to realize His sovereign power, His control over everything that's happening, and His care for them. He wants them to witness and to understand with, deep, with deeper conviction that He's caring for them. And that He's never going to leave them. He's never going to forsake them. And Israel's seeing is emphasized at the close of this Red Sea event in verse 30, where it says, Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They saw it. They witnessed it. God's setting all this up for them to see. He will not leave them. He's faithful. And since the Lord will fight for them, they only have to be silent. The point is, Israel has nothing to fear. God will take care of business. And in the, in the whole event, it's obvious only one person is doing anything, and that's God. Israel just needs to wait and to watch and to trust. Which brings us to the third section, starting at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So how does God respond to Israel's crying out? They do cry out, and we can commend them for that. They cry out to God to save them, despite that there's some rebellion there. But how does God respond to them? He does answer their prayer, but not without a rebuke. So why do you cry to me? In other words, why aren't you trusting? What's your problem? And his command, keep moving forward. Just because you see opposition doesn't mean to, you need to stop. Press on. One almost wants them to, expects him to say, what did you expect, Israelites? The Pharaoh just to let you go? And then after rebuking them, God explains his plan. Three steps. Israel is just to keep moving forward as God splits the water. Moses is going to be an instrument of God splitting the sea is to lift up his staff, making dry ground as the sea divides. And the third thing, God's going to take care of business. Look now at verse 17. 14:17. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. He's going to harden the Egyptians' hearts so that they will persecute Israel. They will pursue Israel. And again, the reason for this is pursuit is so that God will be glorified. The point is, it's in the persecution of the church as well that God is glorified. God plans our afflictions so that He will be glorified. And this may seem troubling for us at first. But that's really only if our hope is fixed in just the things of this life. We grasp what Paul grasped in Romans 8 that ultimately speaking, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And what can man do against us? we just saying about it. If God is for us, who can be against us? Neither death nor anything in this life can ever separate us from the love of God. So why should we be troubled? Now for us, we know God is going to save them. We know what God's going to do for Israel. He's not going to let any of them perish. 
what if he did? What if God didn't save them? What if he chose to glorify himself through their death, much like he does with Christians today throughout the world? In places like Nigeria or India, Iran, where people are dying because of their faith. One could actually argue that this is the normative plan of God for spreading his glory amongst the nations. Know what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In fact, put your finger here in Exodus 14 and flip to 2 Corinthians. This may be the most important cross-reference regarding this issue. Beginning at verse 7. 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 7. But if we, we have this treasure in jars of clay, which means cheap, breakable earthenware, temporary, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And know what happens. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Sound familiar? Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of death. In the body, the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death. For Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Note, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Then jump to verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So all this is for God's glory. He's, he's planning it. It's part of the, the process. And because of that, because Paul knows that, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight. That word in the Hebrew is kabod, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient. They're for this life. The things that are unseen are eternal. As John Piper famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And I would like to add, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him, which is proven when we don't love our lives unto death. When we love our lives not unto death. I get that phrase from Revelation 12. This is what it says. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. The one who accuses them night and day before God. And follow this. It's talking about Satan accusing their brothers. And in verse 11 he describes the brothers. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb... And by the word of their testimony, for they loved their lives not unto death. They conquered through three things. The blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and the fact that they did not love their lives even unto death. And then you have verse 12 that says, Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
So the saints conquer Satan by those three things, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by not loving their lives unto death. And the conclusion of that is that therefore is, therefore rejoice, O heavens, the heavens rejoice, the heavens. People may mock you, your friends may think you're crazy, but the heavens rejoice. They rejoice at such testimonies. Rejoice at such lives. And I mentioned, this is a troubling passage to me because I have to ask myself, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for me who lives in the Disneyland of the world? I think at least we need to consider... Is there a greater level of faithfulness that God's calling us to because we're not persecuted? At least not like the rest of the world. Is there a greater level of faithfulness that God is calling you to in the comforts, in the riches, in the safety and security that he's given you? Secondly, I think that such a heart of faithfulness will at least be seen in not loving the things of this world which may include your entertainment, your money, your free time. I think it also means choosing to do what is right versus what might feel good. Confronting a person. Standing up for the oppressed. Telling the truth. We lay our lives down every day. Every moment there is an opportunity to do this. When we do that, what we're doing is we're investing in an eternal economy, something that will never fade away, something that's not transient like this life. And as we move forward, as we move forward in the face of fear and in the face of uncertainty, God will be glorified and Satan will rage and the heavens will rejoice at such testimonies. Now, when God told Israel to move forward, His presence in the fiery pillar protected them from Pharaoh. And because of this, the Egyptians never even came close. But just because God didn't let the Israelites get harmed does not mean that he won't let us get harmed. The truth is that not all Christians will be persecuted for Jesus' sake, especially those who live in 21st century America. But they should expect to. Just like not all soldiers who go to war get killed, all soldiers expect it. God some, and he allows others to be taken. And we're not given the reasons why one and not another But we are told that there's a good and there's a sovereign purpose behind it all. And as I thought about that this week, I I recognize an interesting parallel between persecution of Christians, at least our, our Americans' response to persecution or thoughts regarding persecution, and Americans' response to the deaths of their soldiers in foreign wars. We're celebrating Veterans Day tomorrow, a time when we honor those who have given their lives for our country. And it prompted me to go back and, and, and consider how many people have lost their lives in fighting for our country. So I'll just throw out some brief stats. These are some of those recent wars. In Korea, we lost... Sorry, not Korea, but in uh, World War II, we lost 405,99 men and women. In Vietnam... We lost 58,000. In Afghanistan, we've lost 2,000. In the war we just finished in Iraq, 4,000. So 
So when I read, we've, we've roughly lost 6,000 men in Iraq and Afghanistan, the wars we've been fighting in the last 10 years. The amount of lost lives, the closest to that number of all the foreign wars we fought, where we've lost about that many, is the Philippine-American War. A war that maybe some of you don't even know what it is. My point is, our country has expressed an unprecedented unprecedented amount of shock and outrage at the loss of human life over the last 10 years by our soldiers. And in comparison, it's relatively few. It's almost like we didn't expect so many people to lose their lives. And likewise, American Christians are shocked when suffering comes because of people's allegiance to Christ. When it should be expected. And, and like 21st century Americans, we, we still applaud and honor those who lay down their lives as examples. And yet we assume that if such indignity should happen to us, something's wrong. Something's, somebody's made a bad mistake. It shouldn't happen to Americans. Maybe, maybe people who live in some other country that don't have democracy, that don't have security and freedom, yeah, we expect them to die. But we're Americans. So we just don't, we don't expect it. And when this is our mentality... We're going to want to go back to Egypt when the persecution comes. The best news is, and the point of this passage is, that even if God does bring persecution into our lives, or bring suffering and loss, we can still trust Him. Because He's sovereign over all of it. And the story climaxes in verse 21. And I'm going to read it all. You're all very familiar. God destroys the Egyptians. But he preserves Israel. And the most important aspect of this section is Israel's response in verse 31. It says that as God destroyed the Egyptians, Israel saw the power and they feared God and they believed in God and in his servant. They saw, they they personally witnessed the amazing power of God. He destroyed Pharaoh, the most powerful army in the world. And they feared. Point is, when you see God miraculously destroy the most powerful nation in the world, you fear. You realize what he's capable of. You realize this is not a God to be toyed with. But they also believed. It says they believed in the Lord, which is what God was seeking, but also in his servant Moses. This is the highest title anybody could get in the Old Testament, to be called the servant of the Lord. It signifies more than a person just simply being a believer. It describes an individual who is acting on behalf of God. It's as if that person is God's personal representative. The servant of the Lord is the personal representative of God. In Israel, despite that contempt, despite that mockery of Moses that they gave earlier, Look upon him and they believed, yeah, this man is the servant of Yahweh. Because Moses was faithful, his glory was displayed in him. And I think there's an application there. There may be times in your life where you make decisions and there's resistance. And people may mock you because of it. Scorn you because of it. It doesn't make any sense to them. And if you're faithful, if you're truly following the Lord, His glory will be manifested even under such resistance. So in summary of this passage, the main point is God is glorified in the persecution of His people. And He shows this multiple ways. He's glorified by destroying Israel's enemies. He's glorified in proving His faithfulness to Israel. He's glorified in the testing of Israel. He knew what they could handle. Reminds me of Hebrews 12. God is like a a, a disciplining father. He's glorified in his faithfulness to the servant. 
And ultimately, he's glorified amongst the nations because of this act. And we'll look at that next week. How do we apply such doctrine? Know that you're never alone. You're never alone. Do not fear. Stand firm and trust God. He's directing all of it. And He's with you. And He's good. Let's pray. Father, I'm not sure how each of us is going to apply this text in our future. But I do pray that you would give guidance. Particularly that you would give, you would lay before our hearts, you give us a solid foundation to trust you. To trust you despite what's going on, despite the confusion and the chaos and the shock, that we would not lose heart. Lord, help us to be a church that knows how to come alongside one another in such times. We, Lord, that we wouldn't lose heart as even we see others suffer. Lord, I pray that you would help us to know if, if, if you would have us, if you're calling us to a, a greater level of faithfulness and even what that would look like because of the incredible blessings you've given us. Maybe the most unsettling thing about this whole reality is the truth that this is not normal, the security and comfort and blessings that we experience. It's never been normal throughout history and even in today, it seems like America is just in this bubble. God, I don't, I don't necessarily want that to change. I don't want our security to change. But I certainly, I do want to live the life that you're calling us to. I want, I want to live the life that you're calling me to. And I pray that you give us guidance. Shepherd us. Shepherd us in the times of security. And shepherd us in the chaos, the times of fear. And help us to know how to comfort one another in the process. Lord, we ask these things in your name.